Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from sunny but very cold California. You know, if we all had the courage to stand up and do what's right, like my guest today, boy, we'd be in a, a whole different world. And to, and to find redemption in the process, and I, I'm so thrilled today to talk to my guest, who was raised by artists and computer programmers, gravitated toward the Colorado punk and grunge scenes back in the day. We'd have a lot to talk about on that. Uh, he created Colorado Switchblade, which is a news outlet that includes writing and podcasting. He's now become a frequent guest, CNN, MSNBC, and others, as he was a key witness during the televised hearings of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attacks on the United States Capitol. He's now the author of a new book, The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers, and Why We Should Be Concerned About the Future Civil War. Jason Van Tanto, I am so excited to talk to you today, and I just, I, I really am so grateful for you even wanting to be here with me. So, Jason, welcome. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I, I actually wanted to do this podcast because, you know, I, I, I think it's a very intriguing subject, just the kind of the the trauma that can be around something like right. uh, testifying. Yeah, and oddly enough, today with the, the Murdoch case out in South Carolina, I my heart is, I want to do a piece on that with those just those jurors, what you have to go through um, to sit there and go through those photographs and, you know, let alone the stress and everything around it. So I'm, I kind of want to jump in. I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the past. I want to talk about kind of some things that have happened to you recently, but what originally was your role with the Oath Keepers? Well, I mean, originally it started out where I, I had embedded in with Stuart Rhodes. I've kind of always been at a, a DIY kind of punk rock ethos journalist, um, mm -hmm. starting more on the art side, because I'm an artist as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, growing up in, in on the front range of Colorado, I got my start writing for underground newspapers, you know, the, the Rocky mm -hmm. Mountain Bullhorn I helped found, and, and I didn't found it, but I, I helped with getting it off, launched and up. That was a, uh, a an alternative paper to the Colorado State University's Collegian. Mm -hmm. And then I, I kind of got hooked in with this this group of, you know, punk rockers that was doing the Color Red magazine, which was the Denver's like underground music magazine right mm -hmm. at the heyday of the, you know, the golden years of the 90s with yeah. the grunge and everything that was going on. Yeah. So that was my start. So I, I you know, I'd gotten to Montana. I just, I had owned a uh, tattoo shop in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And, and you know, my, my oldest daughter had just turned 18 and I naively thought, oh, well, you know, she's an adult now. I'm good. Um, which I, I just, karma really had a lot of things Real to say life. about that. Yeah. Um, that's really when parenting starts. So, right. so, uh, you know, I, I was kind of lost and I was podcasting and I was doing some, some work for a little internet based talk radio outlet called revolution radio. Mm -hmm. And, um, so this, this event was happening in the desert of Nevada back in 2014. It was the Bundy ranch standoff. Right. And I was, I, I just, 
I had been reading a whole lot of Hunter S. Thompson, working through his omnibus, and and you know was very influenced by his Hell's Angels, and um, the 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 whole notion of of participatory journalism, kind of mm-hmm. before he got full Gonzo. And uh, so I started making calls. I just knew it was something that that was going to be historic. You know, we kind of get that that gut feel mm-hmm. that you know this is, we might be watching history unfold a little bit here. Right. And I just wanted to go see what was happening. So I made some calls. I had done some social engineering in Colorado before I had left, and and actually had been elected to the Republican Party and became the PR director for Larimer County Republican Party. That was more of just a, a social experiment more than anything because I've been. I've been um, a, a registered independent my whole life. And so, you know, because I have tattoos everywhere, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was always told there, there are certain things you just can't do. Yeah. So I, I decided I was going to run. But from my from my connections there, I got embedded in with Stuart Rhodes and mm. went down with him in his vehicle for the second half of the standoff and had unprecedented access. And for those who don't know Stuart Rhodes is, can you? Explain his position. Sure. Stuart Rhodes is, if you don't recognize the name, you've probably seen him if, if you haven't been living under a rock in the last year because, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was he was just prosecuted for and, and found guilty for seditious conspiracy. Mm-hmm. He is the leader of the Oath Keepers. He founded it. So um, he really is the Oath Keepers. He's the guy who has the eye patch and mm-hmm. you've probably seen him either in, mm-hmm. in your newsfeed or on TV. And um, he he started the Oath Keepers and and really was the Oath Keepers. So you started working with him directly. Yeah. So I was invited to go um, to two other standoffs: the the Sugar Pine Mine standoff, which happened in Josephine County, Oregon, and then the uh, White Hope Mine, which happened in uh, Lincoln, Montana. Which is may sound familiar because that's where the Unabomber was from and was busted at. And actually, you know, it was kind of a, a, a bit of a fluke. I mean, I, I went into this thinking I might be able to write a book out of it, but I kind of got lost along the way. But, you know, I started working for him because I, because I was getting this unprecedented access, they had asked me to help them with the formatting of a press release because they, they had someone they called a PIO or a public information officer, but they had, they've never done any sort of media work whatsoever. And, I, because I was getting so much unprecedented access, I, I told them that, sure, I'll help you format it. I won't have anything to do with the the contents or, or anything like that, but I'll help you format it. So I did that at Sugar Pine. And then, and it was always with the premise, you can't use my name with any of this. Like, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm helping you with formatting and that's it. Here's the who, why, what, where, when, here's how you, you know, plug your information here, here, and here. Mm-hmm. And, and at Lincoln, I uh, again helped them, and again it was with you know very clearly stated on my behalf, like do not use my name with this. And of course, Murphy's Law kicked in, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> my name was included on it. And my day job at the time was working for the Department of Agriculture and the uh, Montana Department of Livestock. And so I got a call at about six in the morning by my bureau chief, just screaming at me, "You know your name is in every newspaper in the country right now, and not in a good way." Wow. So I, I was, I had to resign, and because uh, I didn't want it to, you know, have any blowback on them. And so uh, I was pretty pissed at Stuart, and I, I went to go give him a piece of my mind about it, and he was like, "Hey, wait, 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 what? Maybe this can work out." And you know, I need someone that knows how to navigate media and can help us with production of, of media stories and video and kind of be a, a gatekeeper for national media interviews. So I, um, 
I agreed to do it and it was good money. You know, I made better mm-hmm. money with the Oath Keepers than I did working for, you know, Alden, an Alden based local news outlet here in Colorado as a staff reporter. So, and it, it gave me more access. And so that's kind of how I came to, to become the national media director of the Oath Keepers. I was also an associate editor for their webpage. So that's the story. So one of the things I, I like to kind of address is that there's always logic and emotion, right? So there's logically, someone can look back on something and say, you know, I should have done this, I should have done that. But I, I'd like to ha- ask you, when did you emotionally start realizing that you were what you call in your book, drinking the Kool-Aid? When, when, did, when did that start coming from your heart? Sure. And, and you know, I, I want to take responsibility and, and own things from the beginning because, you know, there, there was a bit of a, a transition that happened where we saw things become more extreme and, and creep further over to the right. You know, I, before Bundy ranch, the, the Oath Keepers were more of what I would term kind of a anarchist libertarian book club. But with the advent of the first armed standoff, they, they found that they could make a lot of money in a short period of time and get a lot of attention and that boosted everything. But, you know, I grew up in CS, you know, outside of CSU in Fort Collins and, you know, part of my life experience was going to these alternative independent documentary films that would be, you know, mm-hmm. shown at the student center at CSU. So, you know, I, and, and I come from a time where we grew up with the, the stories of Waco and mm-hmm. Ruby Ridge and, and mm-hmm. kind of this government overreach. And, you know, I, I've always kind of been, I've always had a healthy distrust of the government. Mm-hmm. And I think we as Americans have, have a right to and, and should be sure. distrustful to a certain extent. You know, and I think, you know, the, the, the war on drugs and, and different, you know, systematic racism, all of that really leads me to kind of where I was there. But, you know, really it was once I started seeing this, this hard creep to the right that I, and, and there were earlier red flags that either I just chose not to see or, you know, listen to Stuart in private conversations when he would tell me things like, you know, I would really like to be able to defend a gay couple defending their pot farm from the government. You know, I'm someone I, back in the day, I wasn't open about it, but I am these days that I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. queer person. And, you know, I, I was open with Stuart about it, but, you know, we had the people running the back end was a, a committed gay couple. You know, I wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we went to cover what was happening in, in Rowan County, Kentucky, with the county clerk that wasn't signing the marriage certificates for, for gay mm-hmm. couples, you know, I had a lot of issues with that. And I had written my own article that, that was, you know, different than what Stuart finally put out and he rejected it. You know, he, he put out his own information about it. And there were a couple times like that where I just, there were red flags going, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it, I was finally making some decent money, you know, before I actually quit, we had had one of the best Christmases we ever had. Cause you have to understand I, I've lived the majority of my life and at times a thousand percent below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a, a long-term partner that, that has been medically disabled. You know, we've mm-hmm. been together on and off for about 30 years wow. and, you know, two children in the house at the time. So, you know, part of it was the, that poverty aspect and the mm-hmm. fact that I was finally making some decent money, mm-hmm. but it really, to answer your question, it was a, a culmination after what happened in Malheur. I was there and, and I knew. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar with the Malheur 
refuge takeover. A few years back up in Oregon, there was a uh, the Ammon Bundy's son, or yeah, no, it's Ammon is the son of Clive and Bundy. Mm-hmm. And they had gone and, and taken over a uh, wildlife preserve. And there was a, a, one of the members died during a traffic stop that while they were traveling to a different right. county by the state troopers and the mm-hmm. uh, FBI. And that was Lavoy Finnicum, who, who I knew from interviewing multiple times and just, you know, kind of had built a rapport. And I'd been driving with him a couple of days, just two days beforehand. I was one of the last calls to him just saying, Hey, this is not worth dying for, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, begging you to just reconsider what you're doing, but he was ready to, you know, he was ready to become a martyr and that's eventually what happened, but it was going to his funeral a couple of weeks later and seeing his daughters who looked very similar to, to my daughters and mm-hmm. just seeing their emotional devastation and loss mm-hmm. really made me think about what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, and what, what would happen to my daughters if, right. you know, something similar were to happen and that's right when we kind of saw in the our, our national culture, we began to hear words like the alt-right. Right. Um, they really hadn't been part of the lexicon before right. that period of time. You know, I'm someone who has never been raised racist. My my family is blended. My, my cousin and aunt are Jewish. You know, mm-hmm. we used to have shared holidays mm-hmm. back in the day. And while Stuart started talking about, you know, beginning to network with with Richard Spencer and and some very actual racist hard right people. Mm-hmm. And I had some very big issues with that. I was I was already kind of in a depressed funk because of the funeral and just these kind of self-realizations like I've become a different person. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm dressing differently, I'm talking differently, I'm drinking this Kool-Aid and I'm becoming, you know, radicalized in a way that I don't want to be. So you started to begin to see it from your outside in versus in and inside out. You started to see it from all aspects within yourself. Yeah, really. I remember just after the funeral and just kind of really beginning to question things, looking at myself and realizing, because, you know, day one, I was wearing, when I first met Stuart Rose and went down to, to Bundy Ranch, you know, I, I had a, a, a Ramones t-shirt on, I had a Mohawk. <laughs> You know, I I, mm-hmm. I was my usual self, but looking, you know, spending a year and a half there in Montana, kind of sequestered out in the the mountains near Glacier National Park, and and just you become part of these echo chambers where, you know, that's all mm-hmm. you hear and that's all you consume. And um, I remember looking in the mirror and just like, who really? Who have I become? And this is, do I want to be this person? Is this is this the world that? I want my daughters being raised in and, and and am I the, you know, the best version of myself to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And it came to a culmination when I went to, it was right at that period of time. It, this, this happened successively in a, like a week or two. And I went to the, uh, the, we only had one grocery store up there and it was kind of a, a communal gathering spot, you know, at the end of the day, everyone get a, you know, be around the deli counter. Mm-hmm. Um, they had like a little deli restaurant off to the side and I walked into a conversation. One of the members was one of the, the core members that I had met um, the first night I was at Bundy Ranch with Stuart Rhodes, um, was there with two other associates. Um, and they were talking about how the Holocaust had never happened. Wow. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, are you really, you're, you're saying this out loud? What are you saying? And, and called him out on it. Is that actually the first time you'd ever heard this? From anybody around you? Yeah. Yeah. Up until this point, 
you know, Stewart tried to kind of spend things up until courting, you know, uh, Spencer and, and, and the Proud Boys and some of these other further right entities ideologically, you know, he would always say we're, we're specifically non-racist. We have people of color on our, on our board of directors. We, you know, there our membership. I mean, granted it was always a very, very small percentage. It mm-hmm. was, you know, a token percentage. And I, I that really kind of shook me to wait a second. No, they, they may be saying this, but this is not the case. And even if Stuart doesn't necessarily believe it, it's here and entrenched in the core membership. Mm. So I, I, you know, I called them out on it and they, they of course backed up and said, Oh, well, the numbers were greatly exaggerated and the concentration camps we had, you know, were, were worse. It was just a usual, you know, excuse BS. And mm. so I went home, didn't bother picking up the groceries and, and called a family meeting between, you know, my daughters and, and my partner and just was like, look, we, we, we need to figure something else yeah. out because I can't continue to do this. Wow. I've got to resign. I resigned that night and, you know, we, we didn't really know what we were going to do. We didn't, we were staying in housing that the was well below the, the market rental pricing because it was, you mm-hmm. know, big supporters of the Oath Keepers that, that were the landlords. You know, that was my only source of income. All of our family and social support networks mm-hmm. were back in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And we had to basically reinvent ourselves again. Yeah, it and, sounds like uh, it. But it, at that point, it just didn't matter. It's like, yeah. you know, this. I, I made my decision. I don't like where this is going, and I'm done. Well, good for you. And, you know, and decided to to reinvent myself, and you know, went on to become a first responder, search and rescue team up at the the Can Am search and rescue team, and then uh, doing EMS work. I got my EMT license and worked outside of Glacier National Park in the Cabinet Mountains, and then also worked with the Forest Service on wildfires and, until I was injured to the point that I, I can't do that anymore. And that's when I kind of returned to writing. But that really was that 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 moment where I said, I can't continue to, to be a part of this. How'd you feel when you made that like they made that decision? How, how, did, how did you like feel like, I'm going to make this decision. I know it's going to be hard. But was a feeling of courage? Was it fear? Was it, I mean, where'd you get the strength to be like, I've got to do the right thing here? Kind of all of the above. I mean, um, you know, I just felt like I can't teach my girls to, you know, if, if you get yourself into to something that's not right and you know it's not right, well, you need to get yourself out of it. You mm-hmm. need to be proactive and kind of making a course correction in your mm-hmm. life you know, that may, that may suck. There may be some rougher times ahead with that, but it's the right thing to do. Right. And in the end, it'll work out if you're doing the right thing, because, you know, I believe in karma. I believe in doing the right thing. And I had to show them that. And I had to show them that it's okay to, to mess up, but you also have to try to make right. So at that point in time, I also began working, I had built these, this rapport with, you know, several different, what I would term top shelf journalists across the country, kind of working the extremist beat, um, one of them in particular was actually pretty influential with kind of helping me to to do some self-examination and be, you oh, wow. know, tell me, Jason, you're, you're smarter than all this. What, what yeah. are you doing? Like, come on, Interesting. You, can, you, you don't have to, this is not your only option. Right. So, you know, I, I began working behind the scenes, you know, up until, you know, two years ago, I was working pretty steadily behind the scenes. 
So you had other people supporting you to get out. I mean, you you had like you, you were saying that you were kind of had some people up the chain and in, in the media. And how how did that feel that you had support and that did that feel comforting for us? I'm trying to talk to people out there that have never been through a situation before, like like yourself, and then getting pulled in. And we're going to talk just a second about the government contacting you, but. How did it feel to have that support system outside of your family? Was it securing? Was it still scary? I mean, it was it was scary because, you know, I was kind of out there on my own and I had purged all of that. So, you know, the entire community I was plugged into, I, I cut off. I, you know, I, I purged my Facebook and my social media, mm-hmm. I purged my contact list. I threw out anything associated and just wanted to start new and kind of was able to use that first responder work to do that. But, you know, while they, they were encouraging and they certainly helped lead me to that, it's not like they were there every day. So really my right. support structure was my family, you know, right. and right. my partner and my kids were with me, but all the rest of my family was in Colorado. Yeah. So it, it took us a couple of years, but we moved back to Colorado and now we're, are very, you know, have that support structure. But for a while, it was just kind of us against the world, it felt like. And uh, we we had no idea how we were going to, you know, just survive financially and and be able to afford medications that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. we needed and and just, you know, survive, find a new house, find a new way to do it. Luckily enough, I was able to, to, in a very quick time, get my EMT license and, and kind of find another way to support the family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over that couple years, we realized, you know what, we do need that support structure. And, mm-hmm. and just the culture of Colorado for us was home. Right. And we, we just kind of wanted to go home. So that's yeah. what we did, where the support structure opened up much more. And and part of that was because re- people have misperceptions, you know, family has mis- yes. misconceptions about yes. your experience and what you're doing. You know, to this day, my mother just got done reading the book and and she and my best friend here who they both were supportive, but they had no idea this, this misadventure had gone on and just all the rabbit holes had had gone down. So writing the book really was was cathartic for me. It really was a way for me to, to tell my story and and what I really went through and what my motivations were, um, you know, going in, what my mistakes were, Mm -hmm. what I had learned from things. And uh, so for me, the, the, the really refocusing on that initial impulse to write the book really was a healing process and allowed me to step back and, and kind of realize some of the things that I didn't realize in the moment, you know? Right. We're going to talk about that, actually. I want to, I have some excerpts I want to kind of pull out of here. This concludes part one of my conversation with Jason. Please join me for part two of my continuing conversation as he walks us through testifying in front of the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th riots. You will not want to miss this. So go out and spread some love. And thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. 
Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.